0: Bible biogs in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, one character at a time. Author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont is in conversation with David Taverner. In this episode, we're looking at the life of Philip, Philip the Evangelist, and Philip was mentioned in that list in the previous episode, Mike, uh, along with Stephen. So chosen for a similar purpose, just explain the, the background.
1: Yes, what we looked at in a previous episode was how when the church was growing so rapidly, uh, the rapid growth gave rise to problems. Uh, some of those problems are external with opposition, but some of them were internal, and the growing number of converts who were widows who came from different ethnic backgrounds, whether Hebrew or Greek backgrounds led to some contention we saw previously, uh, and claims that those from a Hebrew background were, were being favorited over those from a Greek background in the daily distribution of food. And so the 12 Apostles Decide they need to act on this. They think this can't become a distraction to what either they are doing or to how the church is growing. So they tell the church to choose for themselves seven men who can take responsibility for the church's food distribution program. Uh, They choose seven, interestingly, all from a Greek background. The Greeks had raised the challenge, and it's Greeks who end up being Mm -hmm. appointed. So they they're bending over backwards to to bring fairness back into this food distribution program. And the people that are chosen, we, we saw in a previous episode, was that they chose the following, Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas of Antioch. Now, the others we don't hear anything about again, but those first two named may be put at the front because of the importance that they will have in the story, particularly in light of Luke's stated purpose of, of examining things carefully and putting things in careful order. Stephen, we saw his story previously, uh, but now here's Philip, who's also got that same quality, uh, someone who's full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. So again, this mixture of the spiritual and the practical, and Philip is appointed as one of these guys to help look after the church's food program.
0: And we heard in the previous episode about what followed the martyrdom
1: of Stephen.
0: Persecution, basically.
1: Persecution broke out. Stephen's death as he testifies to Jesus was the First, martyrdom. That means death because of your faith uh, in the New Testament. And what that does is it it triggers, it almost like gives permission for people to do the same. And we see this happening so often even in the world today, don't we? Mm. Uh, Someone attacks someone else and people think, oh, right, let's all do it. And suddenly they get into that. And so as we get into chapter 8 following on, from the martyrdom of Stephen. Chapter 8 begins with these words, a great wave of persecution began that day, the day of Stephen's martyrdom, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. And all the believers except the apostles were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Why not the apostles? It looks like the apostles have made a conscious decision to stay in Jerusalem, to be there as witnesses, not to run. But this is really interesting because way back in chapter one, Luke has recorded for us how Jesus has said uh, to his followers, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And we've noted in previous episodes how they got stuck in Jerusalem and Judea, Jerusalem and Judea. And I almost feel like this is God saying, guys, I told you where I wanted you to go, and they've got stuck. And so God's now permitted a little bit of persecution. And as the persecution comes, guess what it does? The Christians start to run. And guess where they run? Exactly where God had told them to go in the first place, to Samaria and beyond. So now the Christians are starting to do what they were supposed to do from the beginning, to spread and take the gospel with them. And here in this story, they've spread to Samaria, which is that area just north of Judea, sandwiched between Judea in the south and Galilee in the north. Can I just pick you up on
0: the point you made about God allowing some persecution? People listening might think that sounds a bit strange. Is that how God behaves?
1: Well, the thing is, in the West, we have such a nice sanitized view of God, and God is just basically a very nice version of us, isn't he? Um, And we wouldn't possibly allow that. So God can't is how our logic goes. But, you know, the picture we get of God in the Bible is of a kind God, of a just God, but also a sovereign God. That means a God who rules over everything and works everything to his good purpose. And so we see in the Bible, not just once or twice, but again and again, bad things happening to good people. Not because God has deliberately sent it, but yes, because God has permitted it. But out of that bad thing coming, something incredibly good coming as that bad thing has then caused people to turn to God in a new way. And that's exactly what will happen in this story. So God in his sovereignty, God in his overruling is determined to get this good news of Jesus out into the whole world and it's got stuck. And if that means allowing a little bit of persecution to come in order to unglue these Christians and get them out there in the world, then for that greater good, God will permit this. Did he send this? No, I don't think he did. Did he allow it? Absolutely. But he allows it always for good purpose.
0: So Philip, who was in Jerusalem helping with the distribution of food, has
1: just witnessed the death of his friend. Stephen. That's right. Friend and co-worker. I mean, standing shoulder to shoulder there in that, in that food kitchen.
0: And now finds himself in, in Samaria. What, what, what's the sort of significance of him now being motivated to, to go to that area? Well, the
1: thing is, there was a long-standing tension between Samaritans and Jews. It comes out in the Gospels. We see it many times. In fact, a good, devout Jew would not even walk through Samaria. So if a devout Jew wanted to go from Jerusalem in the south to Galilee in the north, he would take a longer journey by heading east, crossing the Jordan, going up on the east side of the Jordan through Perea, and then crossing west again (laughs) over the Jordan or to the north of Lake Galilee and coming in that way. Anything rather than have the dust of the soil of these dirty, filthy Samaritans on your feet. Why did that come about? goes back to the time of the exile when Judah had been taken into exile in Babylon. But while they had been sent there, Babylon had also brought people from other parts of its conquered empire and settled them in Judea. And these people had intermarried with some of the poorest Jews Babylon had left behind. They really weren't bothered about them. And so some of the very poor Jews and some of these people from other conquered parts of the Babylonian Empire had come. They'd intermarried. So when the Jews eventually came back from exile after the 70 years that Jeremiah had prophesied, these people who were then in the land say, yeah, you've come back. We'll help you. And the Jews said, no, you weren't. You're not true Jews. You're, you're Half-Jews, you're half-caste, you're a half-race. That sort of language that would disturb us today. I mean, to to talk today of someone being a half-caste would be so offensive, but that's exactly the tone that the Jews had for the Samaritans. They despised them. And so the Samaritans said, well, in that case, you know, please yourself. You, You build your temple and we'll build ours. And they did exactly that. They built their own shrine in Samaria And a division came about between Samaria and Judea that was not healed even to this time. So when Jesus told that parable of the good Samaritan to Jews at the time, that was crazy. I mean, how how can you have a good Samaritan? There's no such thing. But he's the guy who turns out to be good, who helps the man in need, whereas the Jewish religious leaders in the story don't. And it's to that people that despised people, the the people who aren't good enough for us, that Philip now goes as he's driven out from Jerusalem.
0: And he's going, as I said, with the background that Stephen has been killed and that Christians are now being persecuted.
1: So I guess his message is a very urgent one. Yeah, I suppose it must have had an edge to it, mustn't it, for him? Um, you know, if, if you were aware that your best friend had been killed for preaching this message and you now feel God wants you to go and take it not to friendly Jews or supposedly friendly Jews, but to a people who've always been the enemies of the Jews, it must have taken huge courage. And I think just reading between the lines here, this Philip is a hugely courageous guy to respond to the Holy Spirit and to go to Samaria in those circumstances. So what happens when he gets there? Well, if we look at Acts chapter 8, it tells us that he went to the city of Samaria and told the people there about the Messiah, Jesus. Crowds listened intently to Philip because they were eager to hear his message and see the miraculous signs he did. Isn't it interesting? You know, sometimes we're afraid to go with the Christian message to people and we get there and discover they're far more eager to listen to it than we were to go with it. And it says, many evil spirits were cast out, screaming as they left their victims, and many who'd been paralyzed or lame were healed. And so there was great joy in that city. So what is Philip doing? He's doing what Jesus did. He's going out by word and by action, by teaching and by miracle, demonstrating that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the son of the living God. And guess what? When you go out in confidence with the gospel, it works. People respond and many people get saved. Was that the response from everybody? Well, obviously there were some who didn't uh, appreciate the message and, and there were some who seemed to appreciate the message, but you didn't know quite how deep it was going. There was this guy called Simon the Magician, Simon the Sorcerer. So he'd obviously been involved in occult powers in some ways and uh, Philip's miracles were so great that even this guy uh, was impressed. And eventually, he ends up uh, becoming a follower of Jesus himself. It says that people believed Philip's message of good news concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus. And as a result, many men and women were baptized. And Simon himself believed and was baptized and began following Philip wherever he went and was amazed by the signs and great miracles. Now, we'll find later in chapter 8 that actually it seems to have been the miracles and the power that he was more interested in than a changed life in Jesus. But this is just incredible. There is so much acceptance of the gospel in the very place where Philip might have expected there not to be. I wonder how that might apply to us today. Are there places near our homes, near our churches where we think, oh, I'm not sure about taking the gospel there, it would be tough. But that could be the very place where God has been at work, as he clearly had been here, to people being open to receive the good news of Jesus.
0: And presumably word quickly gets
1: around and and indeed gets back to Jerusalem, does it? Oh, there's nothing like news that, you know, Travels fast, is there? Particularly if it's news that disturbs you somewhat. Because, of course, while this was good news that people were believing, you know, just hang on a minute here, David. This actually is the claimed salvation of Samaritans. You know, are, are we sure this is real? Are we sure it's genuine? So listen, what the apostles in Jerusalem do as the news gets back to them is they send two of the apostles down, uh, Peter and John, to, to go and test it out. And as they get there, they discover that it's real. And we read that as soon as they arrived, they prayed for these new believers to receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them, for they'd only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And Peter and John laid their hands upon these believers and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, why hadn't that happened through Philip? Well, I don't think personally it's anything to do with apostolic succession. It needed an apostle to lay hands on you, and then you could lay hands on someone else, though some Christian traditions would see it in that way. I think it's rooted in something much more historical and cultural at the time. Remember the huge division that we spoke about. Between Samaritans and Jews, and I think if if Philip had just prayed for them on their own, there could have been the danger of these new Samaritan Christians saying, "You see, we, we we don't need you, you Jewish believers. We don't need you Jewish apostles. We've got everything we need here." And I think, and many scholars think that God delayed their receiving of the Spirit until the apostles came from Jerusalem as a way of showing. Guys, you need one another. Samaritans, you do need these apostles and the Christians in Judea and Jerusalem. And Christians in Judea and Jerusalem, you really do need these Samaritans. You need one another. And so there is this delay in the giving of the Holy Spirit. Um, It's not the first time we'll see a delay. And in fact, one of the things we see through the book of Acts is that the gift of the Holy Spirit, while it is expected as the norm for every believer, does seem to happen in different ways and at different times. So in Acts 2, they receive the Spirit and are saved and are baptized, all at the same go. In Ephesus, later on in Acts, there's a delay uh, because they'd not really had teaching about the Holy Spirit, so they teach them and lay hands on them. Here there's a deliberate delay to heal this breach. The house of Cornelius, the Holy Spirit falls even before Peter's got time to give his appeal and invite them to come to Jesus. So the Spirit does come in different ways for different people. And and the key is not it has to come in this order, but the key is are we full of the Holy Spirit now we've received Jesus? And if not, let's pray that we will be so, just as the apostles prayed for these guys.
0: But just to be clear, why is it so important that the Holy Spirit needed to
1: come, as it were? What would have been missing if it hadn't? Well, I think it's the presence of the Holy Spirit that completes our initiation into Jesus. It's interesting, on the day of Pentecost, when the people hear Peter's message for the first time, and it says they're cut to the heart, and it says, the crowd says, brothers, what must we do to be saved? What, what do we have to do to get what you've got? And Peter says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I often liken that to it's almost like four strands of a rope. You know, when a rope is made, it's made of strands that are twisted and it's in the twisting of the strands that the strength of the rope comes. And there are the four things that, that complete Christian initiation. Repentance, turning away from your sin. Baptism, Christian traditions express that differently today, but still an important feature. Repent and be baptized. The assurance of forgiveness, knowing deep in your heart that God has forgiven all the stuff you've done and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, those four things happen in different ways. So why is it important that the Holy Spirit is involved here? Because without the Holy Spirit, really all you're left with is intellectual belief in Jesus, intellectual acceptance that he is the Messiah, but it's the Holy Spirit who brings about that change, that new birth that we looked at when Jesus spoke to Nicodemus that we looked at in a previous episode, and it's the Spirit who turns theory into reality, an intellectual acceptance of who Jesus is to an indwell living with that Jesus and knowing he's there now within you to change your life and to help you.
0: How out of interest did Simon the magician or Simon the sorcerer
1: react? Well, he thought this was wonderful. I mean, this this was the best magic trick he'd ever seen. Magic trick in inverted commas, of course, there. Uh, We read that when Simon saw that the spirit was given, when the apostles laid their hands on people, oh dear, he offered them money to buy this power. Let me have this power too, he exclaims, so that when I lay hands on people, they'll receive the Holy Spirit. So clearly, this guy's salvation hadn't gone very deep, had it. Mm-hmm. You know, he he's really at the level of of just wanting the miracles and the might and the power and not the changed life that lies at the heart of Christianity. So Peter just turns around to him and says, May your money be destroyed with you for thinking God's gift can be bought. You've got no part in this for your heart is not right with God. Peter sees right through him. But he doesn't write him off. He says, your heart's not right with God, but repent of your wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he'll forgive you your evil thoughts, for I can see you full of bitter jealousy and held captive by sin. And and Simon says, pray to the Lord for me that these terrible things you've said won't happen. And Peter and John then make their way Back to Jerusalem, so he he was looking for the wrong thing. You know, it's still easy and possible to do that today. Uh, maybe to go to a meeting and see, you know, it seemed to be great miracles and healing and testimonies, and to want that rather than to want the person that that
0: points to. So the top boys go back to Jerusalem, as it were,
1: Peter and John. Where does that leave Philip? Well, Philip's decided he's got another mission. To do well, in fact, it wasn't so much he decided as he was told. Because we read on in chapter A that once Peter and John have gone back to Jerusalem, that uh, an angel comes and appears to Philip. Now we've looked at angels previously in Mm. previous episodes, uh, messengers from God, and this angel comes and says to him, "Go south." down the desert road that runs from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now, I just need to pause and say that is the most stupid thing ever. (laughs) The desert road was no longer used at this time. It It was like the old road. So it's like an old B road in the United Kingdom that's now been surpassed by the motorway, and nobody goes down there anymore. So here's an angel saying, head south along the road that nobody really uses anymore. And here's a measure of the man, Philip. He does it straight away. He responds to the angel. He starts out, and guess what? He meets someone there. Of course he does, because (laughs) God has told him. And he meets someone really important. He meets the treasurer from Ethiopia, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, we often call him. And and this is like one of the right-hand men of the Queen of Ethiopia. So here is the first person of colour. Here is the first black African, as far as we know, hearing the gospel and about to respond to it. Why is he there and where is he going? Well, he's he's on his way back home uh, in his chariot. And, you know, it's a long journey in those days. It's a long journey these days, but it was even longer then when all you had to do was sit in your chariot and your horse was plodding along down this dusty road. So he's taken a bit of reading material with him. Now, you know, they didn't have tablets or iPads in those days. So um, he's got a scroll. He's got a scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Now, Isaiah is 66 chapters. So this is a really, really big scroll. And He's got a bit of light reading material on his journey. So what does that tell us about this guy? He's searching. Mm. He's looking and he's somehow got hold of a copy of Isaiah. Looks like he was, you know, pretty wealthy. Obviously had access to money. Scrolls were pretty expensive things in those days. And so while he's reading his scroll of Isaiah, uh, the Holy Spirit said to Philip, go over and walk alongside the carriage. And, here again is a measure of the man Philip. He's he's listening to the Holy Spirit, just listening for those little nudges. You know, I think many of us get nudges of the Holy Spirit, and and we sort of write them off or think it was last night's curry. And if only sometimes we'd just step out and follow them through. So so because 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 he's on this desert
0: road um, where it was unlikely to see anybody, but this chariot comes along,
1: and he could have just let it pass by. Yes, he, he could have thought, well, you know, it's interesting, a chariot passed by. And again, I wonder how many of us just miss opportunities that, that God really has set up for us. But Philip is really determined um, not to miss this opportunity. And I love his evangelistic strategy here because he starts with where the guys are. You know, very often in our Christian evangelism, we want to start with where we are at or with what we think people need to know but that's not where they're at particularly in 21st century western culture today but what philip does is he goes to the guy he sees them re- sees him reading from isaiah and just says um morning morning that's not in the text but i imagine they said that <laughs> bit um do you understand what you're reading and the guy says well you know I- how can I really, unless someone instructs me? So would you like to get up into the chariot and sit with me? So Philip thinks, this is it. This is my opportunity. Hops on board. And then Luke tells us in X what it was that he was reading. It just happened. <laughs> I love God's just happened. He just happened to be at the passage in Isaiah, where he reads, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as the lamb is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was humiliated and received no justice. And who can speak of his descendants for his life was taken from the earth. It was one of the servant songs in Isaiah. And the eunuch says, tell me, is, was the prophet here talking about himself or someone else? So beginning with this same scripture, Philip told him the good news about Jesus. Isn't that great? He starts Mm. with where the Ethiopian eunuch is at. Okay, it happened to be in a passage of scripture, but what an encouragement to us today that if we want to see effective evangelism, start with where people are at, start with the things that interest them, start with the questions that they have, not with the questions that we think they ought to have. And so Philip begins from that very passage, it says here, to tell them about Jesus, because, of course, this was a prophecy of Jesus. And as he begins to talk about Jesus, clearly the penny drops. Because we read that as they rode along, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, there's water. Why can't I be baptized? So he ordered the carriage to stop. Oh, that's interesting. So there must have been a charioteer, a driver. Mm -hmm. So there's at least three of them hearing what's going on. (laughs) And they went down into the water and Philip baptized him. Now, we know from the rest of the New Testament that baptism always followed repentance. So clearly, while we're not told specifically that the eunuch repented at this point. Clearly that must have happened. He's seen it. He's understood who Jesus is. He's got it now. And he knows that he now needs to be baptised and to express the new beginning of his Christian life in this way. And so Philip baptises him there in a little oasis, a little pool of water in the middle of nowhere, on the old dusty road that nobody uses anymore, but God has set this up for Philip to be able to share his faith with this Ethiopian eunuch who, of course, would then go back to Ethiopia and be the carrier of that message to his nation himself. Just go back to what you
0: were saying about being nudged by the Holy Spirit. How how has that
1: worked for you? I often get little thoughts that pass through my mind. They're either thoughts or pictures. And how I generally weigh it is, where did that come from? It wasn't there a moment ago. Now, you know, if it's a picture of a Brussels sprout and I've just been eating Brussels sprouts for lunch, that's probably why I'm thinking about it. But very often, just in either a pastoral situation or an evangelistic situation, or even in the middle of preaching a sermon, suddenly there's a word, a thought, a picture in my mind that comes from nowhere, out of the blue. And I've learned increasingly to trust that, to trust that God put that there and to follow it through uh, and to try to respond to those little nudges. Now, maybe they come in different ways for different people, but I would encourage you, if, if you just feel like this inner nudge to do something or go somewhere, for goodness sake, do it. And if nothing comes out of it, what have you lost? Nothing. But what you might have gained could be something incredible. So after Philip had baptized this Ethiopian, what what happened next? Well, we read that when they came up out of the water, here's a strange phrase, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. What on earth does that mean? I have no idea. But he says, the eunuch never saw him again, but he went on his way rejoicing. Meanwhile, Philip found himself further north at the town of Azotus and preached the good news there in every town along the way till he came to Caesarea. He had a supernatural translation. He was suddenly caught up in the spirit and moved, was moved, from this place in the south in the desert to suddenly up on the coast towards Caesarea. Now, I don't know how that happened. It was nothing short of a miracle, but I think it reflects again what an incredible guy this Philip was. But
0: having moved around, it sounds like he went to where God needed him
1: to be. That seems to be the thing about Philip, a willingness to go wherever God wanted him. And sometimes that willingness to go came as a result of that persecution, other times out of taking the next step in front of him, other times through hearing this little nudge of the Holy Spirit to go this way rather than that way, and at least on one occasion through a miraculous intervention. But I think what Philip models for me is the need for us today as Christians just to be open to to go anywhere and everywhere that Jesus wants us to go. And sometimes we will be conscious of going to a particular place and believing he sent us. And other times, not quite sure why, but like Philip, each of us just needs to be ready to share the good news of Jesus with them. Starting not with where we would like to start, remember, but with where people are at. Start with their need and their questions. And who knows, if our evangelism began to do that, who knows what sort of change we would see and who knows how God might end up using us, just like he used Philip. David Tavener was in conversation with Mike Beaumont, who's written about the people of the Bible throughout the Christian Basics Bible. Catch their conversations anytime time on the UCB player or with your favourite podcast provider.
0: Just search for Bible Biogs in 30 minutes.